Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Collective Whisper podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay. It's great to see you guys again. Today, we have a very special guest. But before we get to that guest, I would just like to remind you, please subscribe to the show and please share the show and please leave a review. We like to hear the reviews, what you think of the show, what's your opinion. It all helps us make it a better podcast. So thank you very much. Moving on to our guest. So this week, I'm going to speak to Joel Lambert. Joel Lambert is a former United States Navy SEAL and television personality. Lambert served in the U.S. Navy for 10 years spending six years as a SEAL. During his time as a SEAL he completed several deployments to various countries including Iraq and Afghanistan. He retired from the military in 2011 and began pursuing a career in television. Lambert is best known for his role in the Discovery Channel television series Lone Target or Manhunt as it's known in other localities which aired from 2014 to 2015. In the show Lambert played the role of the prey tasked with evading capture by a team of skilled pursuers. The show was filmed in various locations around the world including the Philippines, South Africa, and the United States. In addition to Lone Target, Lambert has also appeared in other television shows, including Survival School and The Unexplained Files and the TV show Predator. He has also worked as a stuntman and a technical advisor for various movies and television shows. Outside of his television work, Lambert is an avid outdoorsman and survivalist. He has published several books on wilderness survival and has also taught survival courses. He is also a supporter of several charities, including the Navy SEAL Foundation and the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. Welcome to the show, Joe Lambert. Hey, Simon. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. You're welcome. You're you're in Nashville at the moment, you told me. I am. Yes, I'm in Nashville, Middle Tennessee, enjoying the spring and raising my chickens and gardening and got my tomatoes started on the windowsill and my dog and my girl. And it's just it's fantastic. That's brilliant. And is the weather very warm there at the moment? At the moment? No, it's actually chilly at night and uh, and sunny and nice during the day. We're just kind of transitioning into um, to spring and it'll start getting hot before here too long and we love it a lot of my guests come from something i see or something that piques my interest and i came across you know joel's show manhunt and as i had told him before we started i had seen him in other films you know but manhunt was the one for me that really piqued my interest because i like these evade and capture shows and these kind of things where people are tested against each other so my boy was beside me and i said I have to see, can I get him on the show? And he's looking at me like, are you crazy? Why would that guy come on your show? <laughs> but you know, you have to ask. You have to ask. And here you are. <laughs> here I am. So if you don't ask, you don't get. It's exactly right. If you don't ask, the answer is always no. Exactly. Always is. So Joel, we'll kind of talk later about what you're doing at the moment. But let's go back a bit. I always like to kind of go back. So, you know, before you went into the Navy SEALs and not so much as a child, but what were kind of your memories growing up? You know, did you have aspirations to be in the military or were you a very active in sports and stuff? No, actually, um, that's what I find interesting about my whole uh, personal evolution is that as I was growing up, I was your typical kid. I was wearing my camouflage clothes with my friends running around in the woods playing, you know, G.I. Joe or whatever it was. But I I actually never had any aspirations to go into the military. As I was fascinated with it, it was not what I felt my direction was until I was in my early 20s and I felt directionless. And I felt this 
pull from inside me. And th- I understand it all now, but I didn't, I didn't at the time I was flying blind. And now I know it's that Jungian call to adventure that, um, that, uh, Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, all of that. We are all as human faced with at certain points in our life, generally very early on a crossroads. And it's, a, it's usually a hard left into the dark. It's into the wilderness and you're called out into the wilderness to evolve as a human, really, um, to come to that archetypical deep well of masculine or feminine energy that undergirds all of us, the collective unconscious, whatever you want to call it, spirit, the Holy Spirit, whatever. But that that power, that source source power that's reflected in that Akashic field and, and in the zero point field. And anyway, I'm, I'm going to spin off into quantum physics. This is an exciting subject. But anyway, I felt this this pull off into something mysterious and and dark and scary. And I thought, what is that? Well, one, I didn't know what it was. But two, I said, I saw in front of me this long, clear path that was well lit with picket fences and the houses and the, and the kids and the career and all that. And I could marry my girlfriend and go down this path. But then there was this, this hard left turn off into the woods. And it was just a little trail. You could barely see that it was there. I'm speaking allegorically, of course. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew that I had to go there. And so for the next year or so, I really searched myself to figure out what it was. And I thought, you know, should I climb Mount Everest or, you know, go down to, to um, you know, Rio de Janeiro and start training with the Gracies? Should I, um, you know, what, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to an expedition on Antarctica? I knew, I knew it was something crazy and adventurous, but what came down to is it's those things I all knew I could do. They'd be hard. They'd be very difficult, but I knew I was capable of that. But when I was about 10 years old, my father had a friend who was in the Navy and he came over for dinner. And after um, dinner, he and my dad were having coffee in the living room. And he was telling my dad about some crazy Navy whale program that he went to. And they tied him up and threw him in the deep end of the pool. And he swallowed water and started drowning. They pulled him out and revived him and asked him if he was ready to go back in and finish it. And said, no, I'm done. I quit. And I didn't know what it was at the time. I mean, this was probably 1981 or 82. And, uh, the SEAL teams were not well known at the time. And I found out later that that was SEAL training. That was actual drown proofing in basic underwater demolition um, buds, the SEAL selection training program. And so I thought, and I was, a, I was a water baby as a kid. So I was always the kid in the deep end of the pool with a mask and the fins and the snorkel that the lifeguards blowing their whistle out to get out of the pool when the session's over. So I was a water kid. <clears throat> and so that scared me to the lizard stem of my brain. And I thought, I, I, who, who does that? And what is that? And why would you ever do that? And, and I don't think I could survive in that situation. So I knew somehow deep down that that was what I had to do because I didn't think I could do it. or I wasn't sure that I could do it. And two, because it scared me more than anything else and the fear of failure. And so that's what I needed to do. And so I did a lot of research on the SEAL teams and on SEAL training, BUDS in particular. And I knew that this was what I had to do because of the fear. And so I I arranged everything, sold everything, and went down to the Navy recruiter, um, told them what I was going to do. They kind of laughed and sniggered at me, but, you know, whatever. And I signed up. And then about a year later, just constant preparation, training, running, swimming, um, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, dips every day. Um, I got ready for it. And then I shipped off and then went through Bud's Class 220, Hell Week 220, watched a guy die next to me in the pool, Gordon Racine. Good dude. And then um, ended up graduating class 222 and going on to the East Coast SEAL teams. And that's where it all really started. And that was my first real, my first real 
step outside myself. And I learned from that point on that stepping outside yourself like that and taking that hard left turn off the beaten path is the most rewarding thing you could ever do as a human being. When I was graduating buds, you know, I, I broke both my legs. I watched people die. I saw people quit. I saw their dreams shattered, saw people humiliate. It's an incredibly emotional thing to do and very draining and, and very taxing as everyone is aware. But graduation day from buds was still the greatest day of my life. But I realized on that day, as I'm standing up there, um, graduating from buds training, making it through, I realized that this is the greatest day of my life. And this is amazing. And I'm standing on the mountain peak right now, but I, I realized that this was not the greatest day of that journey. The greatest days were the ones on the trail where it was pitch black. I couldn't see a thing. Couldn't see the next step in front of me. Couldn't even see if there was a step in front of me and cold, tired, wet, miserable, sobbing, crying to myself in the, 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 just the, the exhaustion, the mental exhaustion, the spiritual exhaustion of this quest and just putting my foot in front of the, the next one and just trusting that there was going to be something there for me to stand on and stepping again. Uh, that's something there that I, I noticed with your character, even from that show, you know, so for anybody who doesn't know the show, Joel is an evade and escape specialist, an ex-Navy SEAL, and his job really was to outrun and outthink the authorities in whatever country that he happened to be in, which is Philippines, Mexico, the Polish border guard, all of these things. But what I noticed about your character was sometimes when you came very close to being captured, you could see your brain going into overdrive and kind of thinking, okay, I've been here before. This is the dark despair, the dark pit of despair, but this is nothing maybe to what my training was so I can get out of this. You could see your mind working. That's awesome. I, that's, I love that you said that. That makes me feel good. And you're absolutely right. Because once you do that one time, and I realized that I'm standing on this mountain and the, the key is to stand on that mountain and take it in and enjoy it for what it is and celebrate the victory but then look to the next mountain and realize that to climb the next mountain, you got to go down this one and you got to go to the valley again. And you got to go up that, that path, that crooked path to Mordor again, and not to be too stuck on your victory to be able to set that aside. It never leaves you, but to set it aside, quit staring at that trophy and go back down to that fucking valley and start climbing again. And that is where the jewels of this human existence exist i imagine you know for lots of guys and girls who go into the navy seals and as far as i'm right in saying uh, women can go in the navy seals but nobody has passed it yet or has they passed it no nobody has made it through training yet i think maybe one person has made it through pre-training nobody's passed it you know it's it's all political stuff it's all bullshit there's a level set there so maybe one day somebody will make it through but it's just that physical difference between men and women, which make the greater the challenge, isn't it? Exactly. And a woman will make it through because this isn't about enhancing the combat effectiveness of the SEAL teams or the merit. It's, it's about political bullshit. Yeah, of course. And so somebody will make it through because they, they didn't create the pathway for a woman to be able to go through training to not have one succeed. So they will have, there are, they've already lowered the standards and lowered all kinds of things. And it, but it hasn't happened yet. And they'll continue to lower and destroy why we are good in order to have this political victory. So um, I was lucky enough. The, the Vietnam era was where we were born. And then like the Afghanistan and Iraq, those are the, that's the golden era for the SEAL teams. I mean, we, we, that's where it all really 
that was a golden era and it's it's the SEAL teams are done. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So, you know, when you were that youngster there and you were saying there one thing, you were on about, let's say, you know, do I go with the Gracies? So I'm, I've been involved in martial arts for years and I recently did an interview with Matt Thornton from the SBG and stuff. So I know you have been involved in martial arts. So was that something that you were doing before you ever went to the Navy? Were you training in martial arts? It was. And I trained with, um, with a guy still in contact with him, Sifu Steve Larson. And I tried, trained in Longview, Washington, and my my I really cut my teeth in Kajakimbo, and then um, then then I got into grappling. Okay. And I've been a grappler um, since. Although I had I did suffer a stroke, a huge stroke two years ago. Okay. That took me uh, off the mats for a while, and so I'm still getting my dexterity and my body consciousness back to continue to to roll and to train. But yes, um, yeah, my, and and you know people talk about martial arts. I was a seal. That's about as martial arts as it gets. You know, the martial arts generally reflect the era that they kind of came out, you know, the swords and hikes and things like that. Yeah. And now martial arts, real true martial arts, like real combat martial arts, it's weapons based, it's room clearing, it's prisoner handling, it's transition drills, it's all those sorts of things. So I, I, I kind of see it all as all one thing, if that makes sense. You know, when you talk to some people who have been ex-military, whether they be Navy SEAL or other military forces, a lot of the time, you know, they say, oh, what you see in the movies with the guys training in, you know, Krav Maga or in, in you know, BJJ and different things. A lot of the time you won't use that because you don't have that hands-on situation. Only, as you said, if you're clearing rooms and you have those close quarter situations. So it's better to be trained tactically in weapons than it is maybe to spend more time on unarmed combat, isn't it? Well, I think that there, uh, yes, and let me also add to that, that the mindset is the most important thing that anybody, any warrior or anybody in any situation, escape and evasion, survival situation, anything like that, the mindset that you bring into it and that you're able to hang on to is oftentimes the, the key between life and death, survival and, 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 and death, or you know, success and failure. And so I think that the intangibles, the training in a martial art um, that you learn about yourself and that you learn about your body and about your ego and about what success actually is and being able to set your, especially in BJJ, especially for the first three years of, of training BJJ, you better set your ego aside, you know, you better because you're going to go in and some skinny little 15 year old is going to bear and bolo under your ass and throw you into X guard and you won't even know what happened. And, you know, you're never going to be as fast as that kid. And, and so those sorts of mindset conditioning things, those are, I think, the most important things that someone can do in their room clear, clearing or, you know, in the field or whatever. The conditioning that you have had as a human being, as a warrior, through that kind of ego grappling, through that kind of conditioning, through that kind of training and being used or competing or whatever it is, those are hugely important things that I don't think you can discount and just say, well, yeah, I'm moving through and I'm going to shoot the dude. I'm not going to, you know. I'm not going to do a takedown on him. Well, true. Could happen. Yeah, it can, and it can happen. And just, but your body consciousness and your mindset from that kind of training can really translate and be invaluable, in my opinion. I was talking about that with somebody recently where I find that sometimes in life you have people who walk through the streets and who walk through life and they're kind of oblivious to what's around them. But then you have other people and whether it be through some kind of military training or through some kind of discipline code, whether it be martial arts or boxing or something that prepares their mind mentally as well in different ways. I find like sometimes I remember having this conversation with someone I said, when you walk down the street, are you aware of your surroundings? And they're like, what do you mean? I 
said, well, like, I don't know, is it me? But when I'm walking down, I'm kind of looking at everything and I'm, I'm not on edge and I'm not like paranoid, but I'm just thinking I'm kind of assessing it. And it's no, it's just a natural thing that I think came from that. And then when I kind of, as I got older, I thought that's actually a good thing because you never know how a situation can change. And it's rather than go through life with blinkers, just be ready for anything. Absolutely. You're situationally aware. And that's something that I harp a lot. Situational awareness. It means, you know, I'm not walking down the street, you know, with my head in my phone. And you don't have to be, you know, hyper vigilant with your head on a swivel, although there are times for that. And if you're situationally aware, you'll recognize when it's time to turn that on and flip that switch. But you're just taking things in. You're assessing data. You're assessing people's body uh, posture, um, nonverbal communication. You're seeing, you know, escape routes. And it's interesting that you brought that up. I remember one time very distinctly, I was in the SEAL teams. Um, I was an operator at the time. I was in a platoon and I was flying home for Christmas or something, I think. And I remember I'd gotten on the plane and I'd, I was in my seat. I was an aisle seat and I was doing something. I wasn't paying attention, but people were walking by, filing past me on the aisle of the plane, going back to their seats. And I remember noticing without thinking about this at all, I remember noticing that every person that was walking by I was I was killing them in my hit my head. This is weird, but as they're walking by, I'm like the person's chin is up, taking their throat right out, soft tissue. Somebody else heads down, my thumb's going in their eye socket. You know, I'm stepping behind that person and I'm I'm rear naked choking them. Or you know, I'm my my pin is going in their kidney because their their hand is up and and it wasn't conscious. I wasn't like thinking about how I'd kill each person as each person was walking by. It was like automatic, and I'm seeing a grid superimposed on their body, and I'm just killing them based on their body posture. Walk by, yeah. Psychologically, yes. And 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 I was like, it was weird. I was like, wow, that's really bizarre. That's kind of that's kind of fucked up. But at the same time, it's really really cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, it's like on the verge of like sociopathic behavior. But I can understand because uh, one thing I, I I just sorry to interrupt you, but just there because I I always say to people, I think people have a dark side and a, a light side, like the yin and yang. And I think the the true power of being a human is having compassion and empathy. But you also have to be aware that there's a side of people that can be effective as when it comes to violence or as a fight or whatever. So I think that you have to embrace both sides and control them rather than just always being the submissive one. Yes. I want to come right back to that because you just hit on something that's awesome. But just to finish, you know, my thought. And so I, I'm like, yeah, sorry. You know, I'm just, I just noticed that about myself. And then as I got out of the teams and, and as I got into, you know, other things that went away, that, that edge went, that razor's edge went away. It's still there. And if something were to happen, the switch would flip and I would go right back into that, that mindset. But I guess what I was getting at with that is that your mindset and your situational awareness, it doesn't have to be like that. That's just a weird example of someone who's doing nothing but training on how to kill people and how to do crazy, intense stuff. That's what it develops in you. And it's not something I was going to act on ever, but that's just the way you start thinking and you become prepared. But what you mentioned about people have a like side and a dark side, I personally think that a man is incomplete and is a harmless and useless man unless you've developed both sides. Because you cannot be a man of peace unless you're capable of war. You can't be a man. I'm I'm a peaceful man. No, you're you're an incompetent, harmless man because you, you don't have the capacity for war. So you're not peaceful because that's a choice. You are incapable of defending yourself and protecting your family, in my opinion. Can't walk away from every battle. No. And you need to be able to have that edge and be able to do those things that you need to do for the sake of your freedom, for the sake of independence, for the sake of your daughter, for your wife, for your parents, whatever it is, you need to have that capability. And a man 
who has stared into the abyss and seen what is deep inside himself and has brought that under control and has it in his power rather than, I don't have that dark side. And then that shit pops out and all of a sudden he's, you know, he's, he's strangling homeless people in a third floor apartment. Yeah, because there's, then there's no control. I know what's in my deepest corners and I've dealt with it and I've seen it and I've seen it come out in combat. I've seen the way my lizard stem reacts to some of the things that I'm not proud of. And I ha- I see that. I know that. I know that's there. I have it on a leash and I have it able to serve me rather than me serve it because I know it's there. If you don't know it's there and if you haven't faced it, you're a ticking time bomb and you're a, a harmless, useless man. Sorry if that hurts him. No, no. I mean, I see that when you look at society, whether it be women or men, sometimes people snap and then they lose total control and do, you know, irreparable damage. And the thing is, I I think the great thing about any kind of training, even if it's just psychological training, is getting the the chance to recognize thoughts you have, these kind of things. Because the minute somebody starts saying, oh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was programmed to do this and I've thought about these things. Someone can say, so you're like a sociopath or you have psychotic tendencies. And you're like, no, no, I'm just saying that these are within everybody. Sometimes people are a hair breadth from snapping into a mental condition. But if you can learn to control them without drugs and everything, and as a normal person, if you learn to harness that and control it, you're a more complete person, aren't you? Absolutely. That's, that is such an insightful um, observation, Simon, to, to realize not many people realize that. And you have to, and one of the things in buds is it's like peeling an onion. So all the students that are there, all the, you know, 80% of the people who attempt buds quit, fail or die. So right. it's not, yeah, it's, it's a very uh, small amount that, that get accepted to go to buds and an even smaller amount, 20% or 25% that make it through. So one of the things that happens in that selection process is it's like peeling an onion. So you you take one uh, layer off and you're peeling yourself. One layer comes off and that next layer is pretty good. And you peel it again. And the instructors in the program are the ones peeling this for you. And if a lot of people come to a rotten spot and they're gone, and I don't mean that there's something rotten in them, but they're not able to make it. There's something in there as you're peeling towards the core of that onion, there's all of a sudden it's, it's not complete. But if you make it through you keep peeling and you keep finding that next layer is complete. And then if, if, if you're able to, you will come face to face with the very nugget, the very core of your being. And you come face to face with that and you see that and then you back back out and then you put all those layers back on you. But you have gone all the way, all the way to the, the very, the very essence of your being. And that's a good thing. And once you've done that and you come all the way back out, you will never be the same. No, and and it's it's great to, as you said, to uncover those layers, to find them, to know what where to put them in their place, reassemble them in the order that you want to make your life more complete, but be aware of them and know that in certain situations, I have this side of me and in other situations, I have that. And to be able to harness those abilities, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I remember, um, I remember coming back from one of my first real combat operations where we got into firefights and we had real combat coming back from that and realizing that I, I enjoyed that too much. I enjoyed that more than I'm comfortable. You know, I mean the combat, all that, yeah, that's, that's badass. but the actual shooting people and the actual, you know, those things, I, there were things in me I saw that I didn't, not that I didn't like them as much as I was like, watch out for that. Be cautious yeah. of that. Watch out for that tendency, that, that, that way that you're seeing that and the way that, that made you feel 
that's something to be aware of. I'm very grateful that I know that I have it in me to be able to do those things for the sake of love. But at the same time, those are things that if unchecked, like we're talking about with if unchecked or unacknowledged, or that's not in me, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. No, good person doesn't mean you're a harmless person. That's a very bad person. The, the greatest, the greatest evil in this world has been done and is continuing to be done by beta males, by weak men. You have to know it and doesn't matter what it is. I mean, any member of society, if they don't really delve into who they are themselves through and, and that doesn't matter if it's through any sort of like psychological abuse they had, younger abuse, whatever. But if you learn from those things and they make you a stronger person and then you learn other skills that enhance that person and are able to look back through those windows or mirrors and say, okay, there's parts of me that, you know, are representative of the good side and the bad side, but I harness them when I can and I control those other inner demons. Exactly. Yes. I have a ravenous beast inside of me that's very bloodthirsty. I know it. I've seen it come out. I have it under control. It's not something that's going to control me. And that makes me a better man. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And so... You know, that whole Navy SEAL training then, when you went then and you went into your first firefight and your first skirmish or whatever, was it, you know, was it something that was expected or was it like a culture shock? You know, is, was it something you, they, they had trained you for perfectly or you just didn't know what was coming? Well, there's no way, uh, first off, let me say there's really no way to um, to adequately prepare for for real combat, it's it's the same as it's the same as buds going through buds. You can be as prepared as you possibly can be, and here's the paradox of it. And I find that some of the greatest wisdom is our paradoxes. You can be as prepared as you possibly can be. It won't help you one bit, and at the same time, you're sunk if you're not. If that makes sense. And then buds is designed to create the kind of stresses of combat as best as we can without actually shooting at these kids. And so then when you go into combat, when you experience it, it's the same sort of thing. It's like, okay, this is, wow, that's, that's, that's the real thing. And this, on one hand, you're completely prepared for it and you're trained and you just, you just drop into the trained warfighter and it just happens. And you just, you move through targets. You don't think about them. You don't feel about them. You just move through to achieve the objective, which is the only thing that has to happen. You achieve the objective. And then if there are demons to deal with, you deal with them later. But you achieve what has to be done. And on one hand, it's all just exactly what we train for. And everyone we go against is because when we train, we train against other SEALs. So when you're in Afghanistan or Iraq and going against their regulars or their whatever, it's pretty easy comparatively compared to the level that we train at. But there's on one hand, there's no way to prepare for it, the, the feeling and, and what it is that you experience during operations like that. And at the same time, coming from where I came from in the SEAL teams, you're perfectly prepared for it as, as possible as somebody can be without having experience. But there's no, there's no substitute to actual you know, combat experience. No, of course, of course. And I one point there that I think is really important is the fact you can do all of the physical stuff. You can even do all the mental stuff. You can maybe even get an ex-Navy SEAL to help you train. But when you go in there, it's nearly like they put blinkers on you and or maybe even blindfold you completely and say... Okay, you may feel you're ready, but the mental part of your brain that's never experienced anything like this before is not ready. That's true. Yeah, and it's 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 a very emotional thing to be in kind of combat like that to to take life and to be in a situation where lives are being taken, and especially when it's there's things like 
you know, bombs being dropped or, or improvised explosive devices or things like that you don't really have control over. When you're fighting man to man, that's different than, you know, things exploding on you um, and, and blowing up. And it's just, there's just a different aspect to it, I find. But when you're in that situation and you're experiencing it, um, there it's, 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 it's very taxing in a spiritual and emotional way. And part of the, the training that we do, the compartmentalization, the training that we do, and the screening that we do for the kind of people that are able to do this is in the SEAL teams and in other, you know, elite level military units, getting the job done is, you know, you read about these guys, his leg was blown off and his guts, he was holding his guts in and he still, you know, managed to free the hostage and make it to the helicopter on his own. Or a guy that we just lost in the SEAL teams, Mike Day, he was on operation, he was shot, I think 27 times. He pulled his pistol out, killed the four terrorists and then walked to the helicopter on his own. He was shot 27 times. I think <clears throat> something like um, 11 of those were in his body armor and the rest of them, like 16, were in his flesh. Or, I can't recall, but just a, a complete stud. And you hear about these sorts of things and it's because you know we're conditioned to just to achieve the objective. If there's something that you have to do, if, you, if you're having to you know, shoot people and move through people and move through the house and clear areas and, and do things that are very taxing to our human spirit. You have conditioned yourself and you prepared yourself that I'm not dealing with that right now. There's only one thing on my mind and that is finishing this mission right here. And whatever it costs, whether it's my life or his life or, you know, this building that I'm in or whatever it is, the mission is getting done. I've already decided that. And when I get back to base and when this is all over and we're all home and I'm cracking a cold beer, then if I have to deal with some of the things that I had to do or I have to deal with the feelings that I had, I'm going to, those don't, those don't go away. You don't get a free pass on those, but you just, you move through them at the time and you get the objective done and then, and then you can deal with that later. And that's something you have to be prepared to do. Talk to us a little about your time in Buds being a phase two instructor. Ah. Was that something that you wanted to get into or like, how did that come about? Well, um, I had just finished my deployment to Afghanistan. I was at SEAL Team 4 at the time and I was ready for some shore duty. So in the Navy, you do what's called sea duty, which is you're on a ship or you're doing the job, you're out deploying and traveling and, and doing what it is that you do for the military. And then there are certain billets or jobs that are referred to as shore duty, which then you're working as an instructor or you're working as you're not on a ship, you're not traveling, you're able to reconnect with your family and, and have some downtime from the intensity of that pace. And so after I had uh, got back from Afghanistan, I was eligible for shore duty. And so I was trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do in my downtime. And my, I originally wanted to go to um, the combat fighting course, which is a pretty cool hand-to-hand -hand combat course that we as SEALs go through. And I wanted to be an instructor for that. But a friend of mine who was actually a little more senior to me got the last slot before I was able to get it. And so then the only um, slot left that was, short, that was legitimate shore duty that I wanted to do was as a BUDS instructor. And at the time I was in Virginia Beach and BUDS is located in San Diego. And so it's across the entire United States. And so um, I didn't really want to make that huge move, but I did want to get back to San Diego and I did want to do shore duty. And as a BUDS instructor, I would be able to go to college. I'd be able to do other, pursue other things, expand my horizons a little bit. And so I took that billet. I moved everything from Virginia Beach all the way over to California and I became a BUDS instructor. And what I loved about it is that, you know, all of my friends are all like, why would you want to go to BUDS, man? Kill yourself. You know, you want to be operating. And yeah, everyone, we all want to kick in the doors and shoot bad guys and blow up things and jump out of airplanes. But those kids that are going through BUDS, that are going to the teams 
next. They're going to be our brothers. They deserve, and my brothers out in the field deserve them to be as, not only as prepared and as trained, but also as having as much understanding of the proper frogman ethos as they can. That is, they're not coming in, you know, doing what the Navy wants them to do. We're, we're, a, we're a band of pirates, and there are some, there's an ethos that goes along with that and a way of seeing the world and relating to your brothers and accomplishing the mission that is very important. And I think that it's very important for incoming personnel to be selected according to that and also have that kind of impressed upon their heart. And so I thought it was a very, not only was it a full circle for me, um, but it was an important job that I was doing. And it was great because I got a lot of downtime. So that was, that was good. And that's what I wanted. So I, I went back to San Diego and I was a second phase instructor, which is the diving and underwater phase of SEAL selection and training. And I did that for a couple of years and then got out and then went up to Los Angeles and started working in film and TV. Wow. And with that BUDS training, basic underwater demolition. So are they, as frogmen, learning to plant explosives? What's the basic remit of their job? Well, um, going through BUDS, BUDS is a selection process, first and foremost. I mean, there's training that goes on in it, but the training isn't as important as the selecting. And so when a student shows up, and this changes year to year, um, but when I went through um, you go, you, you, you get selected for training. There's a bunch of physical tests and some mental screenings and such. And if you get selected to be, um, to go to buds, then you go to buds and you do, um, uh, the indoc indoctrination phase, which is a couple weeks of just learning how buds operates, how you are expected to be as a bud student, how the days run, how the, the class formation works, how just how running to chow and running back, things like that. Just the day-to-day mechanics. And so you learn that and then you do first phase. And first phase is, is kind of the sexy phase that everyone sees photos of and videos of when they think of buds because that's the physical tr- phase. We're not training them to do anything of value. We're doing workouts. We're kicking them in the nuts multiple times every day, hypoth- or, uh, you know, um, uh, not literally, um, but uh, uh, they're, they're just, we're testing their, their mind. And the whole thing about buds is it's a mental test, but we get to the mind, we break the mind by breaking the body, by getting through the body. And so first phase is where hell week happens. And so that if they make it through hell week, then on the other end of hell week, um, they have a couple weeks uh, of walking. You don't have to run and they're wearing comfortable shoes instead of boots because you're just destroyed after hell week. And then after hell week, you have a, a few more weeks of first phase and then you, you transition into second phase. And in second phase, that's diving and underwater operations. And so they learn close or open circuit scuba, basic scuba, and then we test them on that uh, into some very difficult situations. And those that are able to pass that process, we call it pool week. Those that make it through pool week will um, will go on to learn the Drager, which is the closed circuit pure oxygen rebreather that doesn't emit any bubbles. And that's what we use for combat operation. So then we, we train them on that. And they spend the rest of the diving phase learning to navigate underwater in the dark, you know, without any kind of anything but a watch and a compass underwater, which is very difficult. They finish that phase. So they're learning some things, but really the things that we're teaching them, we're teaching them and then putting them under duress in order to screen them. So it's not so much that they learn, it's more that they learn enough and we can test them with this knowledge to see how they perform under extreme pressure. And so then once they go through second phase, if they survive that and make it through, 
Then they go to third phase, which is demolition, small unit tactics, land warfare, and weapons. And so then they start using the carbine, the M4 carbine. They start using pistols. They start learning demolitions. They start learning patrolling, land navigation, all the other types of, of things that we do to operate as the force that we are. So once they finish third phase, then they graduate from BUDS and they move on to something called, uh, it used to be called STT, SEAL Tactical Training. It was called that when I went through training. Now it's called SQT, SEAL Qualification Training. Now we're really training. They are assigned to a SEAL team. And so they need to go through about another six months of training that's not focused on kicking them in the nuts and testing them. It's focused on, okay, they've been tested. They're selected. They've been selected. Now we need to train them up to a level that they can jump in a platoon with some operational seals and not be dead weight, that they're actually able to operate to a certain degree. And so then they do a lot of the same things, diving, land warfare, weaponry, navigation, boats, skydive, all the things that we do. And they do all of that. They do cold weather training and, 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 and uh, all that sort of stuff. And now we're really training them. And then they go to their, their team and they join a platoon. And then they go through a platoon workup, which is about a year and a half, which is blocks of training that are all specific to different capabilities we have. So there'll be three weeks of skydiving, three weeks of air operations and helicopters, six weeks of land warfare, for instance, three weeks of diving, all this stuff back to back to back in different areas that have the terrain and the facilities to support that kind of activity. So basically what happens if you get selected to go to SEAL selection and training buds. If you go there, so if you start buds, that'll be six months minimum. And a lot of people get injured and get rolled back and then it adds three or six months onto the training. So let's, let's say somebody makes it through in one go, six months minimum, sweet. Then you go to SQT. That's another six months minimum. So there's a year. Then you go to a platoon. There's another year and a half of a workup um, before you get operational. So really, a guy is going to have going to be two to three years in the training pipeline before you ever go downrange and be operational. Two to three years of constant training, like every single day, just without you know without let up. Like it's very intense. But when they get to that SQT, you have uh, tested them rigorously enough that you can now start placing some trust in them to learn the things they need to learn, isn't it? Exactly. Like what we do with, with the diving in BUDS, they're learning to dive. But what we're doing is we're teaching them enough that I can go down as a BUDS instructor and beat them up, pull their mouthpiece out, tie it in knots, pull everything off them, punch them a few times, and then push off and allow them to reestablish their air, check everything and do it all in a perfect order and put everything back and then keep moving on in the mission without getting flustered or frazzled. Once they get to, and that's just to test them, to see if they're going to be a good candidate. Now, when they're in STT or SQT and they're diving, there's none of that. Now we're like, you got to get the dive right. You've got to navigate right. You've got to practice. You're already selected. You're already in. Now we got to practice and hone those skills. Wow, that's really interesting. You know, before we move on then to, let's say, you know, your career then in movies and TV show, just looking back on your own Navy career and being in Iraq and Afghanistan and probably other places, was there any one mission that you can talk about that really stood out for you or was a mental or physical test? Which one can you remember? All kinds of them. I mean, there were, there were so many, it always is. Everything we do is all, there's a saying that they told us that the, the SEALs that were our instructors when we were going through BUDS told us that I never really understood until I got to the team, which is it never gets easier. It just gets better, which as a BUDS student, I'm like, how could it not get easier? This is like killing people. It's literally killing people. It's got to get easier. It's got to. And you think as a BUDS student, you're like, once I make it through hell week, 
smooth sailing. And it's not. It, 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 it gets less intense in certain ways and it gets more intense in other ways. Like in first phase in Hell Week, it's, it's just don't quit. You know, and, and that's that's enough, not quitting, because it's so brutal and so difficult. Don't die and don't quit. That's basically all you need to know in first phase. Then you get into second phase, and now you've got a now you've got a, a Navy SEAL attacking you underwater and tying your air hose in knots and punching you and choking you and pulling all your shit off. You know, that's that's a difficult situation to be in. You know, it's it didn't get any easier. It just got difficult in different ways. That kind of situation, it seems like the more stress you can deal with, the more stress they give you. Exactly. It's That's what it all is. It's all about, we can't actually put these guys in combat and shoot at them and see how they do in combat. So we need to ramp up stress to such an immense level that it mimics the kind of stress somebody goes under when they're in a, a brutal combat situation. Because that's really what we're trying to find out. It's not so much, can this guy put his his diving rig back on perfectly and do all the loops and everything and check it all and, and do his thing? We don't care about that. You're never going to do that again. But the point is, is that you've just been attacked by a Navy SEAL. You haven't breathed in three minutes. You got all your shit pulled off you. You've been punched underwater. The stress levels are up to here. And can you be calm in that situation and remember what you were taught? That's That's what we're testing. So if a guy, for instance, does everything perfectly but misses one little thing, it's up to the instructor's discretion. As a, and as an instructor, there were plenty of times where there'd be a, a there'd be something I could fail somebody for. It's a legitimate ding, and I could fail you for that. But you did phenomenal in everything else. And what we're really testing for, if you look through the the what's overt on the surface and get to behind that, what we're really looking for, you demonstrated that beautifully. I'm going to pass you because it's really all about. What are you going to be like when the shit hits the fan and nobody's coming to get you and you got your brother behind you and it's it's completely on you whether you're going to live or die, really, is, is what we're looking for. The one question I always wonder with Navy SEALs, are they so highly trained underwater that it's like second nature to them? Yes. And one of the interesting things that any SEAL will tell you is that a Navy SEAL will go a mile out of his way to avoid getting his feet wet. Everyone always thinks, oh, you're, you're a Navy SEAL. You love the water. No, it's actually the opposite. I'm a Navy SEAL. I'm in it so much, I absolutely hate the water. So when I was in Buds, I'm living in San Diego, California, which is a paradise. It's an amazing, amazing place. Everyone wanted to come visit you um, and hang out. And uh, and then I was in Virginia Beach, amazing beach. And but people would come and want to go to the beach and hang out. Or when I was as a SEAL, I'm in Virginia Beach. My girlfriend's like, let's go to the beach today. No. That's like, that's like the, I just spent my whole week wet and sandy, you know, coming in and out of boats and coming through the surf zone and crawling through the sand and burying uh, engine boats and, and boats and engines in the sand to hide them and, you know, skydiving into the ocean and all these things. The last thing I want to do on my day off is go down to the beach. What I want to do on my day off is I want to sit on the couch in every warm piece of clothing I have, be as dry as I can and just watch TV for the whole day, you know? My whole work week has been out in the water. Yeah, it's crazy because when you were saying that line, for example, like those, you know, buds trainees are underwater and you have a Navy SEAL attacking you, but I can imagine the difference between, let's say, someone who's a really good diver or who's a master diver and a Navy SEAL is that a, a master diver is not training to attack someone or training how to deal with that stress where the Navy SEAL has that training. Exactly. And one of the other things that... uh People um, ask and, and think is that 
you must be a really fast swimmer. Well, no, not necessarily. There are some really slow swimmers that are Navy SEALs. What we are is immensely, mind-blowingly comfortable in the water, in bad situations in the water. So it's not about being a fast swimmer. It's not about being a great diver. It's not about knowing everything about diving and, and all that shit. Nothing like that. It's about being completely calm and completely comfortable in terrible situations underwater, which you add water to anything and that, that compounds it, you know, three times at least. Of course. And I'm sure even in your own training in the very early days when you were training that you had situations where you blacked out or you, you know, you took in too much water and they are pushing you over that limit. So you feel like you're going to die. Yes. And that's a good point because you actually, I think one of the things in order to make it through buds, um, one of the things that's important is you have to be willing to die. Honestly, you have to be, yeah, needs to be dying needs to be a more acceptable result than quitting, honestly. And when you're in a higher priority, exactly. And when you're in, um, when you're in second phase or any of the diving stuff as a seal or as a bud student, especially as a bud student, you need to be able to get into the, the event, the, the, whether it's pool week or the tread or some of the other really difficult tests that they go through in second phase, you have to be willing to say, okay, I will pass out and go underwater and drown if I need to, but I'm not going to quit. I'm going to finish this. And I'm going to, there's instructors watching you. It's very high risk. We have lots of instructors and lifeguards in the water. So I have to trust that I will go out, swallow water and pass out and trust that they'll save me before I die. And that you have to be thinking that way. Otherwise you're like, if you're, if you're, if you're concerned even this much about saving yourself, you won't make it. And that's by design. Yeah, because that's that's the point is that you have to go over that limit and trust in your teammates. Exactly. Exactly. And in you have to prioritize the mission above your own safety. I mean, in training, of course, not. But to make it through some of the training we do, you need to have that mindset. And we have all the safeguards in place, but people still die in the water and during Bud's training. Generally, about every year to year and a half, somebody dies in training, in selection. Um, in just selection. And then every year, multiple guys die in training. Wow. And you mentioned there when you had your own training that someone died. Was that something that when that happens, you kind of think, okay, what's going to happen now? Are they like, no, no, everything continues as normal. How do they deal with that kind of thing? Well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. So we're doing an early water evolution. Every training thing, event is referred to as an evolution in Bud. So we're doing an early water evolution in the deep end of the pool, which is 15 feet deep. And we were in first phase. We weren't in second phase yet. And we do this thing, it's, they call it the beehive. So you got 100, 200 guys in the deep end of the pool and they're all, we're all treading water, but it's a normal size deep end pool, even though it's 15 feet deep. So we're jammed together. So now you're treading water and you can't even get your arms all the way out and your legs are kicking the guys next to you. And, you know, you start going down and you grab the guy next to you, pull yourself up. So you're all like kind of like pulling each other down and up and getting breath when you can. And some other guy's going to pull on you and pull you underwater and dunk you so he can get a breath. And it's just that's just the matter. This is the way it is. And what you have to do in this situation is then the instructors are on the there's some in the water and there's some on the side. And they say, I don't remember exactly how it goes. But basically what you do is you you take your you're in, you're in your whole uniform. So you start taking your clo your your combat clothes off. So you take your your blouse off. And then you, you take your pants off and you make a, like a survival float out of them. But with, you know, when you're jammed in, in a crowd, it's near to impossible. And so then you, then you take all your boots and everything off until you're just in your underwear, treading water and everything's kind of floating around. And then you get out and you drag everything out and 
And that's, it's like, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, I don't know, in this really uncomfortable situation. It's early training. It's not a difficult thing. It's just a very, very uncomfortable thing. And we had just, so we had just had lunch. So we just run from the chow hall over to the pool, the combat training tank, they call it. And uh, we're doing this evolution. And Gordon Racine, this is class, Bud's class 220, which is my, my hell week class. I got rolled after broke both my legs in hell week. So I ended up getting rolled to class 222 and I graduated 222, but I went through hell week with 220 and first phase. And so um, this was Bud's class 220 and guy Gordon Racine. I hadn't gotten to know him yet. This is a couple weeks into training, but Gordon um, was getting shoved underwater. And, and you can see it as an instructor. There's, there's windows down there. So there'll be instructors and, and officers watching what happens. And so you can see their feet and you can see people kind of coming down and then struggling to get back up and grab, and then other people kind of, so you see people kind of bobbing and, uh, and coming up and down in the water and freaking out and then getting back up and getting air and coming back down. So you can watch it. And what happened is Gordon was taking off his pants or something. And so he was getting, as you're taking something off, you basically just take a big breath and, and let yourself go down towards the bottom because you can't maintain, you know, your head at the surface while you're, you're taking this off. So he's going under, under taking off his pants or his blouse or whatever it was. And he vomited and then breathed some water in, <gasps> aspirated it, and a lot of his vomit came back in. So stomach acid went down into his lung tissue, and then he just, he, he went out. And I was in the water at the time, but I don't remember this happening. I, uh, I don't see that actually part happen. But one of the instructors was in the water, saw it, grabbed him, threw him out on the pool deck, and then everyone was, everyone out of the water, out of the water, out of the water. And so we all jump out of the water, and we all run to the fence and we're facing the fence. Like, what's going on? What's going on? Are we in trouble? I don't know. Are we going to get beat? I don't know. Nobody knows what's happening. And then all the medical staff are all working on, on Gordon, Gordon Racine. And uh, then the ambulance came, uh, put him in the ambulance and took him to the hospital. And then the rest of the day training was done. Um, and we're, we didn't know what was, what was going on. And we found out he was in the hospital. He was on life support. The, the stomach acid burned his lung tissue that he had inhaled in. Um, and then, uh, I, I think it was two or three days later, they let his family come and everything, but then they pulled the plug because there was just, he was, he was brain dead. Too much damage. Wow. Yeah. Too much wow. damage. He was brain dead. Um, he was, and I mean, they were on him like bam immediately, but in that situation, he'd vomit <gasps> and then the, the acids in his lungs and there was nothing could be done from that point, but they got him out. And so they stopped training. And I think the day after that we didn't train and then it was back in boom, full, full on. And so that's one of the reasons why um, SEALs get very, people that, that pretend to be SEALs that aren't, um, we get very upset about that for a lot of reasons. But one, Gordon Racine died trying to get the right to wear, you know, this on his chest. And so if someone's going to die and he never had the right to have this pounded into his coffin or wear this on the, his uniform, if that's going to happen, then some joker in a bar who's trying to get laid or who's trying to advance his personal um, business or, or whatever it might be by saying he was a SEAL. We take that very, very, we take strong offense to that. Does that happen a lot? Because that, you see it sometimes in on media and TV where someone's pretending to be in the military and someone says, I never heard of that unit, you know? A ton. Yes, a ton of it. And it's, it's so it's kind of funny. There, um, there's a couple sayings. One, one SEAL famously said, um, there were around 300 Navy SEALs in Vietnam, and I met all 5,000 of them. <laughs> and that's true, yeah, because 
even you imagine it'd be younger guys would be doing it, you know, because they have that bravado and the no no maturity. But it's still older guys who say they were in Vietnam and they're like in their seventies and eighties and they're still lying for years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. And one of my one of my friends is actually was the first guy I worked for, kind of like my sea daddy. He was my first first boss when I got to SEAL Team Two. Once I made it through all the the screening, a guy named um oh god um why am I blanking Don Shipley. Senior Chief Don Shipley. And Don was hilarious. He's a big dude. And he'd been in the SEAL teams for like 30 years. Big head of hair, tattoos all up and down his arms, spider webs on his elbows, on his neck, just all tattooed. Hilarious. This guy was hysterical. So funny. And he walked down the hallways with his elbows out and everyone got, everyone got out of his way. The commanding officer got out of Don Shipley's way because he was just this old school SEAL. And so many funny stories. But his wife, she was hilarious. She was in the Navy too. She'd always come in. She'd be like, Don, Don. It was hilarious. Their son is now a Navy SEAL. But I remember he got sent home from school, uh, bringing like one of his dad's combat knives to school and stuff. Anyway, really funny. But Don, once he got out, he started exposing these people. So people would, there's a, there's a database of every person who's gone through SEAL training. There's a database. So every person who's graduated BUDS, which is a requirement to be a Navy SEAL, except for a, a handful of corpsmen in Vietnam who were, went through Vietnam with the SEAL teams and they were kind of, they didn't go through BUDS, but after Vietnam, they're kind of like, you you guys are part of our, our group. You're SEAL. Honorary brothers. Exactly. So tell me then, once you left the Navy SEALs and the military, you know, you went into stunt work and TV work and everything. Was the intention to be an actor or was it more to do consulting work? Not initially. Um, so I, the, the way I got plugged into Hollywood is that one of my good friends, um, <clears throat> she's actually married to a SEAL now. I haven't talked to her in years, but um, she was good friends with this Hollywood producer by the name of Jim Jacks, James Jacks. He's a huge producer. Tombstone, The Gift, The Game, Mall Rats, Dazed and Confused, Raising Arizona, Mass the, the Mummy, The Mummy Returns, Scorpion King, all these massive movies. Um, she was a good friend of his, and so she introduced me to him. He was awesome. He was a super cool guy, not a crazy Hollywood nutcase. His dad was in World War II. His dad was an Army colonel who was actually on the Omaha, Omaha Beach, D-Day plus 44 minutes. Amazing. Yeah, so he's this really awesome guy. And did these incredible, some of my most favorite movies of all time, you know, Tombstone. So he and I got to be good friends. And uh, I ended up working with him and kind of consulting on a script he was writing about SEALs in Afghanistan. And uh, I just kind of meet, started meeting people and started getting opportunities to consult on scripts and things like that. And also on weapons and to do some inserts like my hands doing some quick weapon manipulation and stuff for other actors. And, and then I started getting you know, doing some specialty weapons work in front of the camera. And then I started, I honestly, I started taking acting classes because I felt like there was an opportunity perhaps here and something like that. I needed a creative outlet to help plug back in all the wiring harnesses that kind of got unplugged for a good reason for necessary as an operational seal. So I started doing that. Um, and that was fun. And then, um, it was funny. I remember one acting, uh, class I was in and, uh, I'm just, you know, doing my thing. And the, the instructor says, you know, we have to see what you're feeling. I'm like, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. I'm not going to indicate. I'm not going to, you know, grimace and stuff. I'm not going to, that's bad acting. And he's like, we need to see what you're feeling. I'm like, I'm feeling it. He's like, well, we need to see it on your face. I'm like, and he's like, you're just blank. And so I was just, you know, so used to just being completely unplugged and 
Yeah, emotionless kind of. Yes, exactly. That I had to kind of plug in. I always tell people it's like, you know, on, on a on a modern car where those big wiring harnesses that plug together like 25 wires, that big plastic thing. I felt like those have been like unplugged. And it wasn't difficult to plug them back in, but I needed to plug a bunch of those things back in so that the things I felt came to the surface, really. Instead instead of just, you know, those are right on here and I'm just doing what I need to do. So I started being in front of the camera and I started getting some some roles and some television shows and some movies and it was going great. And then I, I had a friend who was a former military guy in, in Hollywood um, reach out to me and say, hey, I've got this friend who's putting together a TV show and he's looking for, for a guy who had a special operations background and who had a strong training in escape and evasion and tracking, which isn't that common. I mean, we, we all get a little bit of it, but the amount of background I had in it was more than most. So I sent my stuff into this guy and he called me immediately all excited. And keep in mind, everybody in Hollywood has got a script or has got a TV show or they're working on something. Everyone's got something going on. And so when someone says, I've got a TV show I'm working on, I'm like, okay, great. You know, <laughs> everybody's got one. So I didn't think much of it. And then he, I had a couple interviews with this guy and I, I sent him more of my stuff. And then he said, Hey, the people really would like to see you, you know, on camera. Can you answer some questions on, on like on a Skype or on a you know, Skype at the time on Skype? I'm like, yeah, sure. And so I did some, some Skyping back and forth with some of these people. And then the guy was like, this is amazing, man. Um, your stuff is fantastic. I want to take you to Palm Desert and shoot some stuff on video for you. And he said, are you available this weekend to go out to Palm Springs and do this? And I actually said, no, um, I'm actually not. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time on your thing and I wish you the best in going forward and, and you know, and developing your show. But, you know, I, I've got other things to do. And the guy said, well, well, I'll pay you. I'm like, okay, well, I can make, you know, 305, I can't remember what it was, 500 bucks or something for the weekend. He's going to put me up in a hotel. I can run out there on Friday. I can run around the desert and do some stuff for him to, you know, build his little re his little sizzle reel, which I, which is what I was assuming he was making a little sizzle reel for um for his, to sell his try to tell, sell his show. And then after a couple of hours, I can tell you I'm done, and I can go out back to the hotel, get a nap in, and then go climbing in Joshua Tree or something. Have a great little weekend outside of L.A. Not have to give this guy a little bit of my time and and go from there. So I I, I drive out there, and I I assume he's going to put me up in a you know crappy motel. And then, which is fine. And then we'll go out in the desert the next day or something with his little Super 8 camera and his buddy, you know, and we'll shoot some some crap. And so I pull into the address where the hotel is, and it's this long driveway in Palm Springs, and the palm trees are going past my car. I'm like, wow, it's a nice place. I get to this incredible resort. I'm like, oh my God, how this is crazy. And I go to the front desk and I check in and I get my um my little check-in materials and I go to my room and it's a really nice room. I'm like, wow, this is guy actually has a little bit of a budget for this. No wonder he could pay me a little bit. And then the phone rings and, oh, hello. And this woman goes, oh, hi, Mr. Lambert. This is so-and-so. And I'm the production coordinator for this weekend shoot. And I know you're not scheduled to work until tomorrow, but Sarah Davies, the vice president of Discovery International, has just flown in and she wondered if you'll have dinner with her tonight. And at that point, the light bulb went off above my head. I'm like, wow, okay, this is actually something. You know, this is, this is a real deal. Um, the guy actually has, we say in the industry, he's got legs. This thing actually got legs. I go to dinner with Sarah. We're having dinner and it's amazing. And I'm telling raunchy stories and she loves it. She's laughing and, and we're having a great time. And so then the next day I go out to, to film this stuff. And it turns out 
They've got an SAS guy in from Hereford. He's got the Victoria Cross. They've got another dude who's a Marine, prettiest man I've ever seen in my life, and me. And 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 they asked me to prepare some booby traps, and I didn't really do anything because I'm like, this guy's just, I didn't think it was anything, you know? So I'm like, you know, I'm not really going to try to, you know, put a lot of effort into this or anything. And so I get there, and they want to see booby traps. I'm like, oh. So I just kind of pull something out of my ass with some, some wire I found in the desert and a cinder block and a, and a Red Bull can. And I make a cool deadfall booby trap and they absolutely love it. And it's just amazing. And so I just got this vibe that this is mine. This is my show. It's just, I know that it's for me and this is mine. And I'm not worried about the, you know, the other guys or anything like that. And so I get a call, I don't know, a couple of weeks later saying, yeah, we'd like to go forward with you. I'm like, cool, great. I knew it. And then, so we go out to Arizona and we shoot the pilot, which was the one um, with the, the ghost recon in Arizona. And we go shoot the pilot. And then I, I knew that this was my thing. And so I don't hear from them for like six months, but I, I don't, I don't care. I'm not worried about it. I'm just doing my thing. And then I get a call from the producer and he's like, Hey, are you sitting down? I'm like, no, I'm actually, well, yeah, I'm driving. He's like, we well, pull over. Cause I got some things to tell you. I'm like, just tell me. He's like, we're going to series. They tested everything out. They edited it. We're going to series. It's amazing. I'm like, I knew it. Cool. Great. I'm excited. He's like, no, do you understand what this means? This is going to change your whole life. I'm like, great. Cool. Let's do it. And because I, I knew I just, it was, a, it was a soul thing for me. And so we did that and we went to series and we shot all the rest of them and traveled all over the world and had an amazing time. And it was the most incredible experience because it was like all my seal training, all my wits, all of my, my physical abilities, everything was laid out there. All my on-camera skills, all the training I had done for that and acting and, and all that. Now I've got to draw on that as well. And I, I may lay it all out there on the line and I may lose and I may get humiliated globally on television. And I'm, I'm carrying the trident on my chest and my brothers and the reputation of us and the SEAL teams. It was like the most perfect, beautiful, amazing thing I could ever do. Wow. Yeah, really good. Yeah. And so let's kind of get into the show itself then because, and you know, you can kind of clear up because it's, it had two titles. So Manhunt and Lone Target. So when it aired, when it, like the one I'm watching now is Lone Target. So when it aired in the US, was it Manhunt or Lone Target? It was Lone Target. So every place it aired in the world, it had a different name. Yeah. So most English speaking places in the world, it was Manhunt. In the US, it was Lone Target. In France, it was Lone Target. In uh, in uh, Brazil, it was O Fugitivo. And in Portugal uh, as well. And in Spanish speaking countries, it was uh, Casaria Humana. Um, you know, the hunt, human hunting. And I think my favorite was in, is in Mandarin, China. And the, the translation they told me was capture the special master, which is, which is my favorite. I love that one. That's a really good one. Yeah. What I always kind of wonder, and you know, you see lots of shows. I've had some guys from Gold Rush on the show and, you know, you, you talk about like production and sometimes they, he would say, for example, yeah. Todd Hoffman was on the show and he said, yeah, he said something might happen on the mine site and production crew would come down and say, what happened? And say, oh, the guy fell over or, or the machine broke and they say, can you redo it? And they're like, what? And they're like, can you redo the scene? And they're like, yeah, but it was an accident or something. Was that something that in that kind of reality world, you have to get used to that if the camera doesn't get it? Yes. And let me add a little bit, like when I'm actually doing that, so the the, the way one of these episodes would get filmed is that, um, you know, the, the, the producers would go there first and they would negotiate everything with the, the hunter force and lay out and tell them what, you know, things are going to happen and, and how it's going to be. 
And then the hunter force would tell them what units they're going to use, if they're going to use aircraft, because we have to put cameras in all the things that they would use and have personnel in them. And then they would lay all that out and sign contracts. And then we would come to the filming time. I would go there with the rest of the filming crew and we would do the hunt, the actual hunt. So I would insert in and then we would do the hunt and I would get away or I'd get caught or whatever would happen would happen. And we would capture that as much as possible with the cameras. And then after the hunt was over, the next day and the next three days would be what we call pickup shots. So we would have to fill in all the blanks and reshoot all the things that they maybe didn't get. And some of the things I would do that were, were really sexy, like skydiving in or spy roping out or something like that. We would not do those actually, you know, in the hunt, because if I were skydiving in to start the hunt and I turned my ankle, now all of a sudden that can't, that can't happen. And, you know, there's a million bucks down the drain. So we had to do some things that were a, little, a few things to, uh, to accommodate TV, but most all of it was straight up. But what would happen is like I'm in the middle of a hunt and they're right on my ass and I'm doing a booby trap or deception trail. And my camera guy would be like, OK, Joel, tell me what you're doing. What's going on? I'm like, shut up and put that fucking camera away because we're moving. You know, and we go. And that's what it was like. I remember in the Philippines, they were on my ass. I was running down to that that rice paddy where I, I finally actually got caught. My camera guy's like, Joel, Joel, stop, stop, stop. I'm like, what, 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 what? He's like, come back here, come back here, hurry. I'm like, what? So I turn around, I come back up, and he's like, here, I want to get a shot of your feet moving past this rock. I'm like, fucking put the camera away. We're on the hunt, you know, we're going. So then the next three days, we go back and we get all those shots. We get me running around and looking over my shoulder. If you ever see my back and I'm talking, but the shot is my back, that's generally me doing that in the studio. And that shot, I'm just adding some some context or something. So a lot of times, yeah, narrating after. And so then we'd shoot all the things, and I'd have to go back and I'd redo the booby trap so they could get all the little shots and everything, or I'd redo the deception trail so they could get all those little things. And they do the same thing with the hunter force, just to get all the little connective pieces. Then. Once they edit the, the whole thing together, then it's like, okay, we need Joel to talk about his plan. They, I, I can't find that bit in the in what we shot. So then, like I, I said, they would go to a place where they, they have a shot of me running and it's just my back or something. And I'd be saying, okay, these guys are on my ass. And so I got to get, you know, do this, 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 this. Those would be me in the studio, you know, doing a voiceover so that they would get the contact cut it in. But what happened really happened. That's all, there's no bullshit in that. That's all really, if I got away, I got away. If I got caught, I got caught. And that's all real stuff. But there are considerations you got to do to make TV. And that's okay. You know, live things, when they're done completely live, there's a lot of fuck ups and a lot of mistakes. And so you have to do a lot of cleaning afterwards. Exactly. And some of the best things though, they happen live because you can't reenact something and have it have the same intensity vibe as when it really happened. So sometimes there would be things that they would miss, but they would still use what they did get in order to make it to have the feel of it actually happening, you know, in, in the actual. So a lot of times if they captured me, you know, we'd go back and, and we'd get shots of me on my belly and, you know, them cuffing me or whatever it was they were doing to, to insert in. But we'd always want to use the real footage in any kind of close encounter or capture or escape or anything like that because there's an intensity to that like they can't be acted can't be reenacted yeah and then in the show itself you know when you have these hunter forces so you know there's a lot of national pride and you know because they're thinking oh this you know it's like this uh, navy seal is here trying to show us up and so do you guess at the beginning because i assume you meet the hunter force before 
or do you only meet them after? Sometimes and sometimes not. Right. But is there any kind of animosity or they're very welcome for the challenge? Massive. No, massive animosity, <clears throat> massive attitude. And that's why I generally didn't like to meet them because they're trying to, you know, all be intimidating. And every single one of them is all like, we'll have him by lunch. We'll have him by Yeah. This, this is going to be easy. And personally, I love being underestimated. I want you to think that because then that's an advantage. You underestimating me is my advantage. So I want you to think you're going to have me by lunch because you know what? You're not. And once you don't, once you realize who you're going up against, it's going to be a little bit of a soul crushing experience for the hunter force. And I want them to savor and experience all of that soul crushing, you know, flavor from realizing, hey, we may not get him at all. This is going to be a lot harder. This, this is, you know, whatever it is. So yes, usually afterwards, a lot of times it's, it, it'd get really good. Um, especially if they, if they, if they caught me, they were my best friends afterwards. If I got away, a lot of times they weren't, they didn't want to talk. We didn't want to hang out. Like the New Zealand guys, I loved them and I wanted to hang out with them. I noticed that when my thoughts were, when the Maori warriors were, you know, following you and then you went in the boat and the shot of you going away, I was thinking, I wonder now, is he going to come back to them and say, hey guys, you know, hard look, but you didn't go back, did you? No, no, no. But after the hunt is over, you know, I meet them, we all hang out, we all do yeah. shots together and we there's usually a dinner or something. But um, some people are able to, to process that a little bit better and be cool about it. And some people are not. Some people are angry. Some people think that they got cheated. Some people think, which is really funny because generally it was them that were cheating. Right. That's And I got one caught one time because they, they used, they were monitoring our, our radio traffic in the field and I figured it out. And so I told my producers and stuff, stop using the radio. And so they started using their cell phones. And so what they did is they drove mobile cell phone tri uh, loca location vans out into the countryside and they triangulated the different cell phone pings that were out in the wilderness and then narrowed it down to the one they thought it was. And then my producer's cell phone suddenly rang in the middle of the forest. He's like, he answered it. It was like some, some advertisement in the native language of where we were at. And then about 30 minutes later, they came in to write that spot. So they used cell phone, mobile cell phone triangulation units to triangulate the cell phone signals in the field and then come in. So there's a matter of national pride that people will go to. There's no, nothing they won't stoop to, to, to win. And you gotta you gotta factor that in, and I, I take that as as a, as a point of pride. Actually, you know, they needed to do that. One of my favorite episodes in in the thing was the Korean one because it you know a lot of them are obviously in the bush, in the desert, in in that kind of land where you where is your home? Like you know, that's a Navy Seal territory. But then when you're in the city and you're dealing with CCTV, you're dealing with close you know monitoring everything. That's a different story. And, you know, even cell phones and everything. So was that more challenging? It, well, so so I went, we were, we were doing it in the in the city. And that was uh, Jeju Island, which is a small island off the southern coast of South Korea. And I thought, you know, I'm six foot one, I'm, you know, a 200 pound white guy. I'll be able to, blend, I, you know, I'm not going to blend in, blend in. It's Korea. But, you know, it'll be, it'll be what it is. And then we get to the island. There's no white people. The only white people on this whole island was me and my crew. And so now all of a sudden it's like any, it's not like there's a, a tall guy on the CCTV camera. It's like, oh, there's a tall white guy. That's him. You know, it wasn't, it, I couldn't blend in at all. So at that point it was like, okay, change of plans, man. I'm going, I'm going rogue. I'm going into the wilderness. And what's funny is that those guys had no ground skills when it came to woods and wilderness. So that's what really threw them. They were used to working with CCTV, 
signals intelligence, that sort of stuff. The actual tracking in the woods and wilderness was not their cup of tea. And so it made for a very difficult time for them. So they they, they tried other things. Let's talk quickly about your escape and evade mobile. And so that that your baby at the moment, tell us a bit about that. That's my baby. Well, this is kind of a long story. I'll give you the short version. But um, I ended up getting in a motorcycle accident after season two of Manhunt and my foot got smashed and destroyed. And so that ended everything uh, running around the jungle for Discovery Channel at that point. And so I had to heal up and, and get back on my feet, literally and figuratively. And uh, while I was doing that, I, uh, I started working with virtual reality. Some, some people that, at that point in time, virtual reality cameras was the next big thing. There were all kinds of companies that were building virtual reality cameras and software. And so I, I partnered up with one company and went up and shot a bunch of virtual reality stuff up in Scandinavia. And it was super cool and I loved it. But virtual reality is limited. Augmented reality, that is digital overlays on the real world. That's where everything is going. And so I got turned on to that. And I was always being asked by fans, podcasts, interviews, media, whatever. When am I going to take, you know, like you were saying, when am I going to take people out in the field and teach them how to do it and show them what teach booby traps? Am I going to do online a master's course or something like that? And I thought that's interesting, but it doesn't, that's not what I want to do. But then I thought augmented reality is escape and evasion, booby traps, tracking, that sort of stuff. Deception trails on augmented reality is brilliant. So I thought we could create an app that people can track and work on booby traps and things like that. So I started developing this and it turned into a augmented reality mobile game. Like if you took Pokemon Go and if you took Pokemon Go and crossed it with Call of Duty or, you know, uh, what I did in Manhunt. That is what I designed. And we have some funding partners and, we're, and it's Escape and Evade Mobile. And we're in the process of developing that. And our beta testing version will hopefully be going to our beta testers within 12 months. So if anybody's interested in, in being a part of this, you can go to escapeandevademobile.com. And there's not a lot of information on the website, but you can sign up and get on our mailing list and, and sign up to be a beta tester. And then when the opportunity comes, we're going to push that out to our beta testers and uh, and get those people on board to be the first ones to use it. Wow, it sounds really interesting. I, I was on your website and it looks interesting. It's a bit mysterious at the moment. You're like, what is it, everything? But I, I imagine it's going to be fantastic. It is. We're not going to tip our hand quite yet, but as we start building it, since we, since we have our, because there's a lot of proprietary stuff that I didn't want to show the world until we're actually in the process of building. So now that we have a funding partner and we're, we're going to start building here very soon, I hope, um, once it starts getting built, There'll be bits and pieces and snippets from what we're building that we'll push out, that will be on the website, and that will go out to the people that are on our list and stuff to keep them in, in the loop. So hopefully go, go to escapeandvademobile.com, sign up, and get on our list, and we'll be doing some exciting stuff. And I suppose my last question was, I should have asked this before this, but will we see a show from you again like Lone Target? I mean, is it finished or it, will you ever go back to that? It's finished. Um, I wanted to. I, I, I hoped to go back. But there's some some political stuff with Discovery Channel that I don't think is surmountable with what um, some of the directions they went. And then also, I'm 50 now. You know, every time I go out and do a hunt, it would destroy my body and my adrenals would be shot. I would need three weeks to recover after a hunt because I'm out there giving it all, everything um, I can do. And in fact, um, I remember the guy who was kind of running the Filipinos, who were amazing trackers, by the way. Those guys, the Scout Rangers, were phenomenal. But they were having a real difficult time with me. And their their trainer or their their head guy was telling him, he's like, he's 46 years old, 47 years old, whatever it was at the time. He's like, he's like, he's 47 
and he's running circles around you. Imagine what it's like if you were your age and we're out here. And so it was, it made me feel good, but they were great. They were fantastic. And I couldn't shake them to save my life. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very physically taxing. So to do a real full on manhunt, like I was doing for the shows, I don't think it's, they would have to pay me so much money because I, I honestly, we put so many people in the hospital doing that show. And if I were to try to do it again, I think I would probably kill myself, honestly. I mean, I came close a couple of times. I think it would probably be the death of me. Yeah, okay, I can understand that. Well, I mean, it's a fantastic show and I look forward, I've still to catch up on some of your other shows, but I look forward to them. And for sure in the future, we definitely would love you to come on the show again. And thank you for taking the time and t sharing your world with us. I look forward to it. Thank you for having me. Joel Lambert, everybody. Thank you very much, Joel. Namaste. Okay, thank you very much, Joel Lambert. That was a real pleasure to talk to you. I've been a fan of your work for a few months now. I've been watching your shows and been really intrigued by your evade and escape techniques and very intriguing and to see how you do it and to also hear the stories behind being a Navy SEAL, which is interesting for everybody. And also all of these other projects you've worked on in the movies and stunt work. Very interesting life. And thank you very much for sharing it with us. We really enjoyed it and I know the listeners will too. So thank you, Joel Lambert. Okay, everybody, thank you very much for tuning into the Collective Whisper podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay. It's been a pleasure having you on board again. And until the next time, we just want to say, remember, keep sharing the show, keep subscribing, keep following. We love to have you on board. And until the next time, take care of yourself, your family, and the people you love. Bye-bye. <music>